In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have lived by the light of our own eyes as faithless and not believing. In your mercy, forgive us. These words from the litany that we use in the Easter season as the general confession seem very apt today. One of the many themes that runs through our readings today is that to do with the relationship between seeing and believing and between believing and life, life with a big L, not the little e of existence. What passes for life for most of us before our life passes before our eyes in those last moments and perhaps we realize that we have gotten and spent all our resources on maintaining the other little e, the ego, which is the best contemporary translation for Sark's flesh. It's not that flesh is the problem or embodiment, as in body versus soul. It's hard to live and any kind of life without a body, and Jesus, as we see today, has kept his body, and he has it still. The body is not the problem. The problem is that the little e, the ego, always wants to be, to be the big I, the unholy trinity of I, myself, and me, around which everything in existence resolves and to which all roads devolve. For the ego, always suspicious, always on the defense, always waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and dethrone him or her once again, hallelujah for that, seeing is believing. Thomas, of course, is no more egotistical than the rest of us. His ego took a hit the day he snuck out, leaving it to the others to encounter that risen Lord and to rub it in to him that they had seen him bodily and he had not. That's been eating away at Thomas all this time. So today, Jesus, now quite omnipotent and very possibly omnipresent, morphs into the sealed space in which they are huddled in fear, phobos, as Laonida expand phobos here, meaning fear in its most intensive sense, bordering on hysteria, on panic, a state of, I quote, severe distress, aroused by intense concern for impending pain, danger, evil, etc. They're living on adrenaline in that little room, waiting for the hammer to fall. They're not just brooding on existential angst, those disciples. They're waiting for the door or the door to be kicked in in the middle of the night. But the one they feared most the one who didn't knock, but who was just there, was the one they betrayed. The one from whom they ran when he needed them the most. The one for whom none of them stood up or stuck around. So now that Jesus is back in the room is the last thing Thomas has been waiting for. Fear, yes, very existential. But what Thomas also missed was the absolution with which Jesus received the disciples' unvoiced confession. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. A gladness, excuse me, tempered by shock and awe at having the least expected thing happen and go this way. It's going to take them a long time to process it, which is why probably Thomas gets such a mixed messages from, the, from them. But the message from God, from Jesus to them, is always the same. Like the angel to Mary, don't be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear, and with God, fear and love never coexist. The fear of God is not what we think of when we think of what humans can do to one another when they've been crossed. Perfect love casts out fear, but from the human side, nothing casts out love better than fear. And God is here to let fear go so his love can come through. And then, only then, does their fear begin to dissolve. Their guilt slowly begin to melt. Their anguish pour out like the ointment from the alabaster jar. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. No, this is not payback time. This is go free time. Forgiven. And then their commission, as they are forgiven, now must they forgive those that will receive it, those whose hearts are changed, who of their own initiative respond to God's first move. How does that work, that relationship between God's moves and our moves? Bishop Callistus Ware writes, Without God's prevenient grace, God's grace flowing before, with its promise of love, we can do nothing. But without our free response, God will do nothing. All the more reason, then, why God's love has to come down, massage our shoulders, and set us free to accept the fact that we have been forgiven. Jesus says, therefore, this first work is a big work. This first step is a big one. But I'll give you all the time you need. Have you believed because you have seen me, he asks. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He seems to be raising the bar on Thomas. We kind of think that that's the last word from God on Thomas. But the news has been reminding us of events halfway around the world that will be Thomas's mission field as he goes to the province of Kerala in India in the year 52 and plants a Christian church there which makes its way to Sri Lanka by the year 73, a church which is still there. Thomas somehow gets it and gets it right and knows indeed how you bring faith to those who have not seen, how you bring those who have not seen the Lord Jesus to come to believe. And it's through God's forgiving love. That would be our task then, too, as disciples. To take this truth that we have been given to those who will never, can never, see what the disciples saw in that locked room. To those who will have to hear from others or discern in some other way 
what it is to be forgiven and will have to discern in some other way than our mere words what it is to be able to love, to go on loving, knowing that there is nothing that cannot with repentance be forgiven. That's the gospel. So we move now to Drawn by God's invitation to extend his offer of grace into the far country in which we live and move and have our being. We proclaim yes, and we should get our proclamation right. But we also live and live out of a changed life. An existence no more. One in which the small e ego is no more either, no longer the center of things, every wound and hurt and imagined slight demanding immediate reparations, pushing back ten times harder. That's not God's way at all. God takes everything we can hit him with and then opens his arms to embrace us in love. Can we believe in a life like that enough to live a life like that? It's not easy. When you've been hit, I speak for myself, you do want to hit back. <laughs> and Jesus says, not on my watch. How do we learn that? In the forge of community and God's Spirit hammering us out on the anvil of his word. We can memorize that word, and we must, but that's only the beginning. Yet look at how those disciples lived when, freed from that upper room, on the day of Pentecost, empowered, they could descend into the marketplace again and live a shared life from a shared vision, living distinctly, differing enough from those surrounding them to attract their attention. Look at how those Christians live. Look at how they love one another, was what the pagan world in which they shared their witness said of them. They lived as if they knew what we know, too, that we're not our own. We were bought at a price. Nothing is ours. All is God's. Our lives are those to give back to God so he can pour out through us or pour out us into his compassionate love. Could we live like this? Indeed, we already do. We already know that. We show that life within ourselves and without ourselves. But we could do more. We have to lose a little of the fear that creeps into us, a lot of it in the world today, and it's been like that before, and it always will be that. Fear is our biggest target, our biggest enemy. The fear that creeps through the world, even into the church. Fear that we won't have enough to eat, we won't have a roof over our heads, somehow we won't make the mortgage, we won't get the kids into the school we want, and on and on and on. Jesus is saying, I'll give you everything you need. Trust me. And in the meantime, trust me to help you separate your wants from your needs. We will come up wanting if we cling to the notion that the things we have are what we need for too long. 
and God will help us in his grace. Be shorn of the accoutrements that we believe necessary to assure our place in the world in which we have been placed. In salvation in Christ, the gospel message, Christ is risen, does not consist solely then in being pulled out of this world so that we can be warehoused in the church until something better comes along as our reward and keep ourselves clean until heaven opens its doors. If that's the point of this whole project, heaven as the ultimate reward, when this life is over and this mortal sphere is quit, take no risks, keep your nose clean, be pious, then we have little to offer to the world at all. But the hope is rather that we go out of these walls, expose ourselves, be vulnerable and messy in our love, make and take the best of the things that we know of how that love works in the world and live today the life of tomorrow right now. That's what we're called to, to live tomorrow's life today. And if the not yet is meeting us very much in the already. It's there to be found again and again. And our proclamation is not beware the end is coming, but rather watch out, look up, look around you. The beginning is here already. We don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow starts today. As we then prepare to see one of our own, welcomed into God's kingdom by the sacrament of baptism. Let our prayers draw us together with Lucia, Elizabeth, with her family, with those who bring her in hope into this community that we may be the eternal church of God incarnate in this little box on Jewel Road and nothing less. And when we say the vows that we are called to say to support her, let's mean them with all our heart. There's nothing we cannot do to hold up one another. Tomorrow's life now, regardless of what the world might think, living differently than the world, as her parents and godparents have chosen for her, as she will choose for herself in time, in more ways than we can imagine living a kingdom life, living the life that we see only by faith so others can see and seeing come to faith. <laughs>